welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. I'm Jay. And I'm Jerry. And this is our review of Gremlins, starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, Point Axton, Polly Holiday, Francis Lee McCain, Judge Reinhold, Dick Miller, Key Luke, Corey Feldman, and the voice talents of Howie Mandel and Frank Welker as Gizmo and Stripe, respectively. Directed by Joe Dante and written by Christopher Columbus, no, not that one, the Home Alone guy. Released in 1984 on a budget of $11 million across a staggering $212.9 million at the box office. Gremlins was a smash, and an even bigger hit at the toy store, with Gizmo Dolls being the hot toy of 1984 and kicking off a stream of video games, toys, collectible cards, storybooks, marketing, and most importantly, about a dozen little monster fake-out movies. Critters, ghoulies, trolls, mm-hmm. hobgoblins, munchies, and all other kinds of dumb little creature features. But before we get into a plot summary of our Christmas spectacular, we have a guest, Jerry Davila from Totally mm-hmm. Rad Christmas. Hi, Jerry. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your Totally Rad podcast and give us a little bit of your history with Gremlins. Okay, well, I'll start with the podcast first. Uh, so I'm the host of Totally Rad Christmas. We've been around for about a year and a half-ish. Um, basically, we talk all things Christmas in the 80s, toys, movies, specials, music, fashion, fads, books. You know, I like to say if it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, we got it covered. I do kind of give a few uh, years leeway there just to kind of you know add a little extra depth because the 80s didn't happen overnight. So we kind of go from 77 to 93. But basically, uh, I talk about the raddest time of year in the uh, baddest decade ever. As to my experience with Gremlins, well, okay, so I was there. Uh, we actually, my parents took me when I was four years old to see Gremlins in the theater. It was a double feature. It was Ghostbusters and Gremlins together. And I remember I was ridiculously scared of the librarian in the beginning of Ghostbusters. And then I kind of fell asleep and I don't really remember it, but I remember Gizmo. Like I woke up and I was watching, I was like super into Gremlins. And then I also was completely terrified when they turned into vicious creatures because I guess the marketing didn't really uh, portray a whole lot of that part of it. And so my parents thought they were taking me to like a cute little gremlin, you know, <laughs> gizmo kind of movie. And it didn't quite work out. <laughs> but I love this movie. It's like one I try to watch uh, now because um, I hadn't watched it in like a couple of like probably two decades. And now I watch it like the last seven years. I watch it at least once a year. It's just it's great. You know, but if I can watch it more than that, then I, I definitely will. Now, I get the feeling, Jerry, your parents were not the only ones fooled by the marketing. <laughs> but uh, before we get into that, Jay, what's your history with Gremlins? I, I, like Jerry, saw this in theaters with my whole family. Like it was, I've said on many podcasts before on here from Strip, holiday time was time for us to go to the theaters together. In 1984, we were you know, there. I think I was, I was seven years old or so, and, and my brother was 12. And so, you know, this was hitting the sweet spot. And uh, we had seen Ghostbusters, and then we saw this, and I remember it distinctly. Funny thing about this, though, guys, I think I've only seen this movie all the way through, like front to back, maybe four times in my life, and that includes the time to watch it for this. I've seen bits and pieces of it through the years, 
My most distinct memory of Gremlins, and this is going to tell you that I definitely grew up in the 80s, were those read-along books you used to get that had the little 45 record that you could play along with, and it was sort of like plot summary the story for you as a kid. Uh, I wore that thing out. Like, I was obsessed with that. And I think I read through that, listened to it, whatever, way more times than I actually ever saw the movie. <laughs> and I, you know, I saw it a couple times as a kid, like I said, and then I would see bits and pieces on TV here and there, but never really went back to it. Revisited it several years ago because it was on that, like, hey, I haven't seen that in a long time. Let's go back and revisit things from your childhood and see how much they're ruined for you. And I was like, eh, you know, I, I didn't really have any strong feelings about it either way. Other than I was amazed that they actually found a white guy more boring and bland than Judge Reinhold, and they put him as the lead actor of this movie. Uh, and and that is as a feat in and of itself. And uh, then, you know, I hadn't thought about it again. And, Ron, you and I were talking about, like, hey, we need to do some Christmas horror stuff. And I said, you know, amazingly, we've never done either of the Gremlin films. And so, uh, you know, it was a good time to do that. And I knew we were we were looking for an excuse to have Jerry on, too, because uh, Totally Rad is a great podcast and a ton of fun. And so th this was a good excuse. So my, my biggest memories of Gremlins, honestly, are that little read-along record thing more than the movie. So I actually still have mine. They're in my closet right now. I have all five. It was like five awesome. parts. Yeah, you got them like Hardee's <laughs> or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I have all of them right now. I, I Played them for my kids, like, I think maybe a year ago, and they just weren't interested. And I was like, man, this is just a different age. It was kind of yeah. sad. I, I, they're probably, like, on YouTube or something. If I really just wanted to go deep dive back into I'm that sure. now. I haven't looked for them. But I thought about that as I was watching this. I was like, I know what scene's coming next. And that's amazing for a movie that I've seen as few times as I've seen this one. And it's because of that dang book and record, man. I mean, it really summed it up. So my history with Gremlins is those little read-along 45 things from Hardee's. I had all five of them. I don't even know when I saw this movie for the first time, but it was definitely well after I knew the story front to back because of those records. So those records and, like, uh, my cousin had a gizmo toy. So those records and my cousin had a gizmo toy, and both of those were, like, crucial things to developing my interest in Gremlins. And like Jay, I haven't watched this movie in a long time. I've watched it for a few years in a row now, but it's mostly just been here that I've started to actually pay attention to it. But before I start talking about a thing I noticed for the first time on this viewing, I better get to the plot summary. Well, and before you get to that, I, you mentioned toy and that reminded me we actually had, uh, I actually did have, I think it was about maybe two and a half, three inches tall. It was a plastic gizmo. Uh, and it was pretty awesome. I mean, I remember used to, I used to play it with, with He-Man and G.I. Joe. And it was like, you know, he was just like the, the cute little furry guy. And I think I, I think I pretended he was like a big Wookiee or something at one point. Uh, <laughs> I actually made him the overlord king of the Ewoks as nice. a kid. And, uh, because I just decided Gizmo was way cooler than the fuzzy bears in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Not a Wicket fan? <laughs> no. <laughs> People go back in the archives and hear my thoughts about that. But uh, <laughs> now, not, not, it, not my thought on that one. Yeah. Now, does it make you feel better, Jay, to know that those Ewoks were probably eating those stormtroopers after they killed them? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I only expected that they were. <laughs> that. So, And it would totally go along with uh, with everything. But, yeah, I think Gizmo could have got down on Endor. It was his kind of plan. Yeah, for sure. 
For sure, yeah. So yeah, I I I love the when GI Joe and Star Wars would like have intergalactic battles because GI Joe was really outmatched, except for Scarlet because she could kill everybody. Because don't trust the redheads. There's something about a redhead, I'm telling you. For me, the one who was killing all the Star Wars guys was Snake Eyes because if anybody, I mean, was right, was one with the Force in a way that only Darth Vader could match up with. So we've had lightsaber versus nunchuck duels. Yeah. Light nunchucks. I mean, I think we've just relived our whole childhood here. I think we did. The first five minutes <laughs> yeah. of this podcast. But yeah. Well, this has been a five-minute taste of every, <laughs> every time I've been on Totally Red Christmas or every time I've listened to Totally Red Christmas because it's yep. always been like a blast in the 1980 oh, right in the face. Yep. <laughs> but, like we talked to, but like we talked about, Jay, in our Friday the 13th reviews, it was the 70s well until like 1987. Yes. So. Yeah, it took a while for the 80s to actually latch hold. Of everything, and that's okay because when it did, man, it was amazing. It was so amazing. John Mayer had made a whole album out of it this last summer. And if you haven't checked out Sob Rock, what are you doing with your life, people? Well, before we get sidetracked any more about uh, reminiscing about the '80s, I'll do the plot summary. Randall Peltzer, with a delicious buttery voiceover, is exploring Chinatown, looking for a place to offload his malfunctioning crap, and he's dragged into Mister Wing's Chinatown shop. After some back and forth, Peltzer uncovers a mysterious creature known as a mogwai. And because he's one of the most American people who's ever lived, he buys it for $200 and takes it home as a Christmas present for his son, Billy. However, mogwai are a little harder to take care of than dogs. So Rand lists off Schrodinger's rules for Billy. Don't get them wet. Don't expose them to bright light because it'll kill them. And don't feed them after midnight. Billy, more or less, follows those rules well until Billy's underage friend, Pete, accidentally spills a cup of water, splattering Gizmo with droplets and causing him to butt off five new mogwai who aren't as friendly or as cute as Gizmo. Those so-called Peltzer pets are loud, troublesome, and obnoxious, and they make life a living hell for poor Gizmo and are second only to Mrs. Deagle as to their ability to torture Barney the dog. Billy takes care of his new charges, except for when he leaves with the science teacher, Mr. Hansen, until the evil Spike unplugs his clock and Billy unknowingly feeds them after midnight. As we all know, after midnight is where it all hangs out. And after midnight is when all the weirdos turn crazy. And after midnight snacking is when Mogwai turn into evil, scaly, green-blooded Vulcans. I mean, gremlins. Mr. Hansen finds himself killed, the first person of many the gremlins inevitably murder. And Billy and his mother Lynn manage to fight off and kill the other gremlins in Billy's house, save one. Spike Scarper is paying a visit to the YMCA and doing a cannonball into the pool to create his very own gremlin army. Said gremlin army immediately start killing and maiming, catapulting Mrs. Deagle out of her upstairs window, throwing stuff out the mailbox, and driving Dick Miller's snowplow into his house. Because I know the character has a name, but he's always Dick Miller to me. Billy's pleas to the police are laughed off because Little Green Monster's wrecking stuff sounds like one of Mr. Futterman's drunken ramblings after one too many long necks at Duffy's. Billy rescues Kate from the aforementioned Duffy's, which is now renamed Gremlins, and they hide in the bank as the movie stops dead long enough for Kate to tell the world that there is no Santa Claus, shattering children's Christmas dreams worldwide. As dawn approaches, the gremlins hole up in the local movie theater to watch Snow White, giving Billy a great chance to blow up the old movie house with all the gremlins inside. Well, except one. Spike, because he's the luckiest gremlin who's ever lived, was across the street stealing candy from the Montgomery Ward. Billy, Kate, and Gizmo... Go to try and stop Spike, setting off a pretty good game of cat and mouse in the department store with Spike flinging saw blades and firing off the judge machine at Billy before a climactic showdown in the home goods department. Billy is held at gunpoint by Spike, who puts his hand in the fountain to kick off a new wave of gremlins, 
except Gizmo rockets into the scene on a toy car, flies through the air, crashes into the wall, and throws open the blinds to expose the mid-molting spike to the killing rays of dawn, dissolving him into a Nazi looking at the Holy Grail puddle and putting it into the gremlin threat. In the aftermath, as news reports mass hysteria in Kingston Falls, Mr. Wing shows up, gives Rand his money back, and takes back the Mogwai, stating that one day Billy might be able to take care of it. But for now, the West isn't ready for that responsibility. Gizmo offers up a sweetly sad, Bye, Billy. As we fade out, and credits roll. So I got one question before we go any further. You think Arnold Schwarzenegger saw this in a theater and a year later was like, I'm going to do what the Spike did with the chainsaw thing. I'm just going to throw it through a guy's head because I saw the little man do it and I'm a much bigger man. I can do that now in Commando. <laughs> I don't know, but you're right. Stripe melting totally did remind me of uh, his face melting in the <laughs> yes. looking at the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> totally Raider. There's so much in like, this movie that is just a complete something else and it gets ripped off and is ripped off from something else. And yeah, there's a lot to talk about for sure. All right. So one of the first things I've noticed, and this is the first time I've ever noticed this, is just how much Gremlins takes its first act structure, first two thirds of the movie, actually, from It's a Wonderful Life. And how many shots Joe Dante straight up steals from that movie. You get a lot of shots of Billy at the bank. You get the, the towns having money troubles. Mr. Potter. I mean, Mrs. Deagle is the greedy owner of the bank and half the town. You get all these great shots of Billy and Kate running through the snowy streets. The movie grinds the halt for a romantic subplot. And everyone learns just how great life was in old Kingston Falls, except there's no clearance to set things right. They just have to live with the fact that their town was blown to shit by Billy and otherwise mutilated by gremlins. Yeah, there's so much like there's like the it's like Chris Columbus had all these ideas in his head. Like, I want to do It's a Wonderful Life, but with like fucking monsters and the Wicked Witch of the West is going to be there. And then there's going to be the hot chick from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. and But she's going to wear a sweater and tell a really morbid story that's like Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 or something. And, you know, it's all this crazy stuff in in a Peltzer blender. And <laughs> sometimes it comes out about like the orange juice does out of the peeler juicer that sprays the, the kitchen with uh, with goo as it goes. It's funny because I, I didn't really notice that until you brought it up, but you're right. It's like exactly it's a wonderful life. You know, you have the, the, the protagonist who's just uh, like just a white bread kind of guy. You know, uh, you have the, the love interest kind of ish, you know, that just I mean, it's it's straight up. It's a wonderful life. And now forever, I'm going to call like Mr. Potter, uh, Miss, Mr. Deagle or something whenever I watch right. it. Because I think uh, I like this movie better, which is yeah. crazy. It's it's so well. I'm, I'll go on record with you. The Jeremy said right now, "It's a Wonderful Life" is so incredibly overrated. That's a Christmas movie. Like it's been shoved down everybody's throats. It's it, it, it to borrow Peter Griffin, it insists upon itself, and it, you know, and I, I, I that movie is is boring. <laughs> like I, I revisited it with family a few years back, thinking, okay, this will be a fun thing to do. And two and a half hours later, we were like, God, is ever going to end? You know, because it goes on and on and on. And at least this movie knows to cut itself into some bit of a palatable chunk as as it does indeed i think you described it right ron grind to a halt as we try to mm -hmm. shoehorn a love story in there where oh boy there was not room for one well well look well listen kate why don't you go to the pool and take your top off for judge reinhold 
That's a terrible Jimmy Stewart. My God. <laughs> That's a terrible Jimmy hey, Stewart. But you know what? I liked not a bad Kate. idea. I liked Kate a lot better when she was just a loose girl that worked at the mall. Because she is horrible in this. Like, I, you got to say it. Like, Phoebe Cates is, her her bad acting is only matched by how bland Zach Galligan is. And it's a good thing they have furry little monsters running around them. Because otherwise, oh boy, this would be, this would be rough city right here. Like, I, I'm talking like Leprechaun too bad acting. See, uh, on the other hand, it's Phoebe Cates. And I think we all had a crush on her at this point, like right. every single one of us. Yeah, I mean, I'm not watching her for a thespian feats necessarily, <laughs> but <laughs> the fact that they give her so much melodrama to do, only to fa- only to be taught by the fact that in the sequel they just send it up, like to make fun of it. So at least they knew that, like, yeah, that didn't really land the way we thought it was going to. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, they just cut it off in the middle of it. So yeah, it's that's. I don't know. There, there's so much you could talk about that. And the, the stories are, are famous, right? About like Dante fought to have that in there. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg was like, I don't even think it's that good, Joe, but okay. If that's, you know, cause he felt like it was his, um, you know, Indianapolis moment in Jaws or something. Yeah. Like, nah, it's, there's, we're missing a lot to be able to set that up and make that work. Well, didn't yeah. he think it was like it was like the thesis of like the whole movie, you know, like like right. if you got if, <laughs> yes, if you, the, we need this because if you if you have this, then you know what the movie's about, you know. The, the thesis of the movie is Christmas <laughs> sucks and might kill you then, because that is the thesis that Kate lays out, and that's pretty much what happens in this movie too: is capitalism will murder you, children. Merry Christmas. All right, so we were going to talk about that later, but since we're already complaining about that story now, here's my question. Phoebe Cates, Kate, goes into this story, and I feel like this, this in and of itself, this story would in and of itself would be enough to, if it had been around, give this movie a PG-13 rating. Because this is both, like, funny. I think she does as good a job as anyone could possibly do with this thing. Because it's, it's clunky as all get out. Like, it's chitty chitty bang bang. Of monologues because it's just falling apart. No, it's the Karate Kid three macaroni and cheese monologue. <laughs> oh, no. It's that oh. bad. Okay. <laughs> All right. So oh, no, he said it. <laughs> how is anyone skinny enough to actually fit down a chimney, or do they just have like huge chimneys in cold weather climates? See, I'm from South Texas, so while there are chimneys, nobody uses them ever. I mean, it's, you know, it's usually Christmas time. It's like 70 or 80 degrees. Uh, so, I mean, I have no idea, but I guess they do. I, why not? Yeah. I've always wondered that too. And I remember as a kid, we had a fireplace in the chimney and my dad got the stuff to like clean it out once. And we thought like literally he was going to climb down it and it's just a big pole. He's like, no, are you stupid? Like, that's the way you do that, you know? And so it, yeah, I I don't know. Like uh, it, the thing about it, and this is what sticks out about it, is is if indeed this is supposed to be the thesis of the movie, it comes at like the worst time. Like you need to drop that earlier in Act Two, so that we we feel some build up. Like maybe if they did that, like right after the science teacher is poisoned to death, which we're going to talk about the fact that the fifth grade science teacher can be poisoned to death on Christmas Eve. But anyway, it might have worked a little bit better, but they save it for this pivotal moment to try to bring all this to it. And I'm like, I think Billy's already eaten out her hand anyway, man. Like, I don't think you needed to sell him on her anymore. That's the whole reason why Zach Galligan got this job, because he came in to read with Phoebe Cates and 
and Spielberg saw it and was like, oh, this kid is already in love with her. This is exactly the the geek we want in this movie. And they literally cast him because they needed like a nerdy kid who was completely puppy dog in love with Phoebe Cates. And I mean, I mean, who wouldn't be in 1984? But, you know, especially if you're Zach Galligan, and that's probably the closest you've been to a, a girl in years. At least one that looked like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I, for I, real. I mean, like, Okay, so so this whole speech, I love the speech. It's terrible. You're right. It's 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 not very well written, but it's it's like just so ridiculous. I think it's like the most Joe Dante uh thing out of like the entire film. You know, it just it's it kind of captures his quirkiness, his his black comedy predilections. I mean, just everything about it. And but you're right. It just it doesn't fit where they put it. And it really did need to be a lot earlier. I mean, I would have even put it maybe in Act One somewhere, you know, um, kind of set it up as 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 like she hates Christmas. Just something about it, it just always seemed off where they placed it. Um, and I think it's because it's like action, you know, they're going, they're running, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah. So uh, my dad, this one time, I mean, it just it it just doesn't quite doesn't quite work i i think but i at the same time i really love the speech <laughs> give me another movie set at christmas has got a lot of action going on that stops to have a beat like this to tell you something really dark about a, a get about a character freaking lethal weapon does this perfectly after murtaugh's family's been taken and when they're waiting on the phone call and and Riggs is sitting there telling him like we're gonna get bloody on this one, Roger, and he's just doing his like his best Rambo. But you you look at that guy and you're like, <laughs> this guy has seen it. Like this is gonna be bad, and it turns out to be that way because you buy that because Riggs has set that up. Mm-hmm. And she's already told us early in the movie she hates Christmas. That it can be really depressing. Statistics show that that that. I'm like, if anybody um actually he's like that to you, like don't ask him out on a date. Like that is not a good time <laughs> to do that, Billy. Like that's. But I think that's the whole point is Billy is like Mr. Innocent Wizkid because like yeah. his whole story is and I got questions so maybe y'all can figure it out for me he works at the bank but he still kind of lives at home in the loft and his I don't know dad bringing in any income at all with all that crap we have no idea but that's a nice house and Judge Reinhold says something about like you're supporting your whole family I'm like I know what bank tellers make like what what in the world like is this guy doing and he's a he's a comic book artist on the side drugs. and he's got this drugs. He's got he's got this young toady friend. Yeah, maybe that's it. It's it's drugs. It's got who, yeah, and uh Corey Feldman is running drugs inside Christmas trees. <laughs> okay, which man. Mel gets a little bust next year. So yes. Oh, Jay. Yes. All right. We tied so, it all together. Okay, yep. but before we get into the actual movie, you guys keep saying a lot of this stuff lost the feet of Joe Dante. But the original script that was written by Chris Home Alone Columbus or not, he, he didn't do Home Alone, did he? He directed yes, he did. Home Alone. Yeah, he did. He directed yeah. Home Alone, but that's a huge yeah. script. So. Yeah. So Chris Columbus, one of the most milk toast writers to ever have written, <laughs> wrote the Gremlins script on spec, and it is incredibly dark. Like the in, like in the original mm-hmm. script, Billy's mom gets killed. Barney yeah. gets killed. There's yeah. a scene at a McDonald's where the Gremlins are just like straight up eating people. Yep. Yeah, all of that kind of got cut out. But Spielberg bought this because he read the spec script and he was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever read. I have to buy this. <laughs> and he got Joe Dante out of kind of a career slump because Spielberg and Dante were both working on uh, Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah. So something good came out of that tragedy and it was Gremlins. 
Yeah. Um, well, that's the best Max chapter Landis. of that one, by the way. The, the one John Lithgow. Lucas John Lithgow, yeah. 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 So, and, it's, we, and it's funny. Spielberg, uh, we talked about this off air a little bit, about how we haven't done a werewolf movie. We need to. Dante did the howling. Mm-hmm. Spielberg loved slash loves the howling. So he was like, Joe Dante is legit the dude I want to do this movie because if anybody can get this balance of horror and funniness together, it would be this guy. And you, you got to remember where Spielberg was in life at that point, mm-hmm. too. Like his first marriage is falling apart. He's not really sure what to do, but he's starting to get himself together because he's met Kate Capshaw at that point. This is a year or so before Temple of Doom and is before he does E.T. and he starts feeling like kids are a decent thing to have. And so he, he's at that part of his life where, like, everything sucks. And so he's, he's Limp Biscuit. He's going to break some stuff. And he reads. And I've read part of that spec script before. And, yes, it is messed up. And in the hands of, like, I don't know, maybe trauma pictures or New World, like, it could have been some glorious D.R. action stuff. But Spielberg gets it. And he puts that famous schmaltz over it. And I love it, you know, and I, I'll defend the schmaltz till the end. People can hear Ready Player One, and I mostly defended it in that. And I think it actually makes it better in some ways, because having read enough of that dark one, like, that seems cool until you realize, like, shooting that, who the hell is going to watch that? Like, nobody's going to go back and see that, especially to the tune of $200 million, no matter whose name's on it. Yeah, I don't think you're selling, like, a- a million gizmo toys if the, the gremlins are straight up murdering people left and right. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The gremlins have a death toll in the hundreds in this town. The consequences will never be the same for this place. You on the other it. hand, looking on the bright side, the budget probably got balanced. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> and everybody got to keep their houses because Mrs. Deagle gets off. That's right. Right? Because where's your stuff going to? Back to the bank. So, yeah. Yeah. Which they throw in a line that I just noticed uh, for the first time. Her husband, who you see his picture in the stairwell, he is a, he was a convicted stock swindler. She got her money. She's benefiting from ill-gotten gains. Also, all of her cats are named after various currency denominations. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I didn't pick so up she on got that. That's a good, Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so she was Gordon Gecko's wife, is what you're saying. <laughs> and before we knew what that was. Uh, no, that, that, I think if there's anything that works about this movie, it, it is the fact that all these caricatures pop up. These are not characters. These are cartoons come to life and, and only, you know, accented by the fact that like Chuck Jones cartoons and cameos of Chuck Jones are in the background of this thing because it does remind me very much of the Looney Tunes that I grew up loving. It, it does quickly devolve. Thing. Yeah. It quickly devolves into, into Looney Tunes. I mean, it's just straight up slapstick style comedy, but I think that's why it works because if you think about it, these creatures are kind of terrifying, you yeah. know, these little things that'll just mess up all your electronics and, and, uh, you know, try to kill you with bows and arrows and, and, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's like that, that just, um, that dichotomy of like, you know, the evil, but also it just, it's fun. And the, the just, I think that's why it, it works. And I think you're right. I think Joe Dante was probably the only one that could really have pulled off that kind of thing at this, in this time. And so I'm, I am glad Spielberg tapped him to do it. And I am glad that he kind of punched up that script because yeah, I mean, 
Oh, yeah. As much as I would have liked to have seen gremlins eating some people in McDonald's, I don't know if uh, I would ever want to take my kids to McDonald's after that. <laughs> yeah, moreover, you notice McDonald's is not the product placement in this. It's friggin' Burger King, <laughs> so, which is next to like a pet store. So that that's saying its own thing anyway. But yeah, they they clearly were smart about this. But yeah, you you can feel the parts where like, ah, oh, that's Spielberg injected into the script, like where he's rewritten it 14 times for somebody to say it better and, you know, give it, give it a little life and stuff. The, the one thing I like, you know, and you notice it if you watch the movies, I mean, it's, it's the friggin' set that they use for Hill Valley. So it's Hill Valley with snow. So, you know, the movie theater, all that stuff. And it's kind of fun to you know see those things. If you've watched back to the future a lot, and I've seen that way more than I've seen gremlins. So I noticed all those little things and got a kick out of it this time. And then, Ron, you, you're right. All the It's Wonderful Life stuff, they blanket on top of it, like all the, the potato flakes that are the snow here, just to layer it on a little thick. Like, they want us to be in a mindset. We open up with the jamming Christmas song, and it's everybody getting in a good mood. And, oh, here's Corey Feldman as a tree. And, you know, all this cute stuff going on. And, oh, this, this mean woman wants to hurt this poor little banker's dog. And all this stuff. You have all the goofy people in the front of this movie, there's that one guy that gets scared by Mrs. Deagle on the sidewalk. And I swear, like, Harold Ramis ripped that off for Groundhog Day years later with Stephen Tobolowsky coming around and doing, like, it feels like the same kind of scene. So you have all this stuff to just sort of get you in the, the mode and the mood and you're there. And there's the cute girl and all this stuff. And then we, we forget, though, how the movie opens, <laughs> which is Hoyt Axton of all people, the most folksy voice, hee-haw thing going on, walking through the streets of Chinatown, just trying to, like, hawk his wares or buy something weird at a whatever this guy's store is. I mean, it's that is such a weird opening to this. It's, it adds a layer of the Chinese mystical that, you know, I don't know that I mean, most people remember the movie. I think most people remember that big blast opening on the snow, but it opens in Chinatown. Now, it's funny because Hoyt Axton was the only person they had in mind for Rand Pelzer. They wanted Hoyt Axton from the very beginning. And when they had to cut a bunch of the opening, Joe Dante went to Hoyt and was like, you sound super American. Here, just read this voiceover. you got a great voice. Just read this crap. And that's why we get the bookends with Hoyt Axton reading the intros and the outros because they had to cut a bunch of crap out of the middle of the movie that explained all this. But from the very beginning... If you have any knowledge of Chinese, and I did not until I looked this up, Mogwai is Cantonese for devil. Yeah, devil or demon, um, evil spirit kind of a so, thing. Yeah. yeah, so Key Luke is trying to ward you right at the, in the, at the front of this movie. Also, can, can we all appreciate the fact that Key Luke got hopefully a good payday to put on a Fu Manchu beard? Yeah, I, hope I love he did. that guy. <laughs> yeah, I hope he did. I, uh, what, can we also talk about like the prototypical short round here? <laughs> it's the one who sells the Mogwai to Hoyt Axton. <laughs> you, you think, uh, you think Spielberg saw it and was like, I got an idea for a movie. I'm like, I, got, I know what to do. To I know exactly the, where to put this kid. The next indie movie. We got to get him one of these. <laughs> That's what happens too. And the problem was they couldn't afford the Mogwai, so they just got an Asian child. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. brought the they brought the Mogwai out, and Harrison Ford was like, "I'm not acting next to that fucking thing. Get it out of my fucking face." 
That was too much emotion, man. <laughs> Dial it back a bit. Well, he was, he's, he's, he's angry. <laughs> no, Actually, I've seen, I've seen him do emotion when Chris Angel did like some of his weird devil magic in front of him. He's like, get the hell out of my house. Like, yeah. No way. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's one of the funniest yeah. clips I've ever seen. <laughs> Oh, I should probably cut all this crap or I'm just dropping F bomb, but whatever. Uh, have this, who cares? It's gonna have the explicit tag. It's, a, it's an eighties movie. What are you gonna do? Come on. Yeah, it's it's still it's still PG. We're only showing faces melting off and people getting <laughs> murdered we, by monsters. Yeah, it, I and mean we used to you, roll back then. If you ever needed to know the clout Spielberg has, I mean well, the first the fact that there's no new Jaws movies ever, as long as he's alive. But if you just wanted to know how long that has been going on Nearly 40 years, people. He went to the PAA and told them where they could stick that 13 at the end of that rating because he was like, no, I'm dragging the American family to this horror fest where we're going to talk about Santa dying in a chimney and we're going to you know, murder half the town with a, we're going to have one of these lizards flash somebody even though he's got nothing in front to flash and you know, that we're going to do all of it and it's going to be friggin' PG. And they said, Yes, Stephen. Sure. PG thirteen didn't wasn't introduced until two months after this came out. I did not know yep. this. I so, thought yeah. it had been around. So oh. my thought is Spielberg said, "You're not you're not rolling out a new rating. No, you're going to hold that crap until Gremlins is through. You can give that crap to Red Dawn or something." Yes, yeah, so they slapped it on Red Dawn, <laughs> Red which Dawn. how Red Dawn is only PG thirteen is a conversation for another day. But yeah, oh, a whole another time, man. <laughs> right. You can get away with so much back then. I mean, it's it's amazing to think about, though, right? I, mean, I, I I would argue too. It was a better time before the NPA got a stick up its nose about everything and started you know wrecking movies, you know, by cutting them to pieces for what they were. Uh, yeah, I I'm I'm for one of those that like art is art. You make a choice, you know, in this country in particular to go view it. And I, I, that what's funny though is that this movie is built on the dupe of like, come see the cute little furry thing. And there might be some green monsters, but they're cute too. And then you get in there and it's like, my father died and of, you know, tragic accident. And, you know, and then you've got the, the neighbor like going, ah, you can't trust all this foreign crap, you know, and then people just getting their faces torn off and shit. Man, this, this movie is messed up. I just wonder how many racial slurs they had to cut out of Dick Miller's dialogue. Not that he would say it, but they were definitely written for that character. You know he's, like, saying all kinds of Asian slurs every time he's, like, talking to his television. Yeah, oh. he's, like, full Wesley Snipes and Demolition Man. Right? right? <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the That'd be great. Like, you have violated the verbal morality statute for the uh, Kingston Falls. No, that would be that would be awesome to to know because what's funny about that though, and I think that is the joke of the Futtermans, is that he's always saying that. But look at all the foreign crap he has in his house, like that Kentucky Harvester may be American made, whatever. Uh, we were still important parts back then too, bud. But anyway, but he's got a Sony TV and he's got you know all this because it that was the joke of the eighties, right? The Japanese are going to take over, right? They're take over everything. Yep. Right. And isn't that what Takagi told us in Die Hard, another great Christmas movie that, you know, you, well, Pearl Harbor didn't work out. We got you with take decks. <laughs> he did say that. He did say that. Yep. <laughs> he died right, so, when I've seen Gremlins. So. We, okay. So we've talked about the Looney Tunes influences. And to me, those influences show up the most in the design of Gizmo because everything they said about Bugs Bunny in the Warner Brothers cartoons was 
going to have big ass, going to have kind of a pot belly. He's going to have little short little arms and legs. He's going to kind of be shaped like a baby. And Gizmo is just the ultimate cuddly baby to me. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts about the unbearable cuteness of Gizmo? It starts, too, when they have that little fake synthesizer, which I had as a kid, and he's singing along with it. And it's just like, oh, it's just a little angel. And I'm like, that's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. It wasn't convincing people it didn't exist, is that he was a cute furry little thing you could own. Well, and didn't they actually have to, like, like in order to emphasize its cuteness and to make sure that all the, the puppetry worked, didn't they actually have to make it a little bit oversized, like for close-ups and stuff? I think they actually had, like, one... Uh, or a couple that were a little bit bigger and, and then that way they could get all the facial expressions that they really wanted him to do. And, and, but as far as the cuteness goes, yeah, I mean, I wanted one so bad. That's the whole reason my parents took me to see it. Cause they're like, Oh, look at this cute little thing. And now you look at like the Mandalorian and Grogu, you know, the child is like, I mean, he's basically gizmo, right? Just without the fur. I mean, it's, it's like a design that kind of really, stands out and stands the testament of time just because it, it how cute it is. I mean, it's kind of anime with its big eyes, like you said. It's kind of just um, uh, Care Bears-ish and just, just teddy bears in general. I mean, everything about it just screams like, hug me, I'm cute. Yeah. And, and, and that's why when they turn into those fierce creatures who, yeah, okay, the, the design's actually kind of cute on those too. Um, although it is also a little terrifying, but just everything about it screams like this is the pet to own. It's your best friend. I mean, it's amazing. And I think that's why it sold so many toys because it's so cute. I, the thing about it that gets me is that there is nothing that it looks like entirely by itself. And there's nothing else that's ever looked like it since that you don't automatically reference point that. So it's implanting a false memory that it's the only thing of its kind, you know, that it's ever existed. So and that is, I don't, I don't want to undersell how hard that would be as an artist to create something unbearably cute, but that doesn't really look like anything else we've ever seen. And that, I mean, the, the artistry to come up with that is pretty darn amazing. You got to admit, like that, that is some good, good work there. Yeah. Yeah. For real production design, whoever the, the, uh, the designer was on that was fantastic because he, he makes it, like you said, he makes it nostalgic enough because it still kind of resembles like an anthropomorphic, you know, bear, you know, like a teddy bear, but it's just odd enough that, you know, there's something not quite right about it. And so you get that familiarity with it, but at the same time, it's, it's, and, and it's something I, I don't think it could have been designed like in the seventies or in the sixties or anything. It's like quintessentially like eighties in its design, because then you, after that, you start seeing so many other creatures that based its design off of it that, that really, you know, I mean, in the eighties, that it's just so eighties to me every time I see it, like it's something about it. It's like, I, I don't think it would have worked. I think the design would have been completely completely different if they had done this movie like 10 years earlier you know uh, and so I, yeah. something something about it just it, it screams like you know 80s uh, it, um, commercialism <laughs> yeah it, it really does I think it's Rick Baker right he's the guy I think so, doing yeah. a lot of this stuff so and kind of early Baker stuff too so it's it's really good well that would tie back into the howling because Rick Baker did the howling so that 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 tracks I don't see why he wouldn't want to pull off the exact opposite of the wearable transmissions and the howling by making something adorable, not horrifying. But, I, we, 
I do have a question about that. I, I, just to jump in there, mm-hmm. when they spill water on it, though, that is that terrified me as a kid, and even to this day, yes. like there's something about the bubbling yes. on poor little gizmo. I'm like, that is, whew, that is just eerie. And when they kind of unfurl and there's that sticky noise, it's you just know, like, oh, this is not going to go well. This is bad. Yeah, they do a great job of establishing immediately that these gremlins aren't like aren't like gizmo. But before we get into that, or before we get too far, much further into that, the three rules. Let's dig into that while we're talking about it, because this is when he's talking to, like, Billy's talking to Corey Feldman. He's like, here are all the rules for this thing, you know. Okay, so, you can't feed them after midnight. At what point can you feed them? Can they have breakfast? <laughs> See, it's a good question. Do they recognize time zones? You know, that's what I I, I have always understood that is it's relative to where you are and where they are, just like it would be for you and me, because Billy has a line and I noticed it distinctly this time. It's like when they're all jumping up and down in the box and having a freak out and he's like, shut up. I already fed you, you know, and it's like, okay, so obviously you can feed them. I think the idea of after midnight is sort of like any time when we would be asleep. You don't need to feed these things. Cage them up, keep them away. And even, you know, Mr. Wing or whatever has Magua, has Gizmo in a cage, you know, kind of at all times. So he knows. And that's how I've always said, I know people pick on that a lot because it is kind of funny, but I mean, it's not like New Year's Evil where he's trying to hop planes or something. You know, that's what I used to think that movie was where the guy's jumping between time zones. I, I think it's just relative to wherever you are. So well, don't they even ask the question in Gremlins too? I think, I think yeah. when he's, he's trying to convince like the scientists or whoever, I think they even ask that question, you know, what if something gets stuck in his teeth and then he crosses a time zone and, right, <laughs> you know, right. does that count as eating after midnight? I mean, yeah. so I, Joe Dante, I think, doesn't even really pay attention to these rules. Or Chris Columbus, you know, I don't think they even really cared about the rules themselves. The light one is the one that I'm, like, most skeptical of. Because I'm like, so, I mean, like, because I watched a lot of Buffy and Angel, and they skirted around that a lot <laughs> with the vampires. Like, they could run out in the sunlight as long as they had a coat over their head sometimes. And there might be a little smoke, but they'll be okay. And I'm like. How do you avoid direct light at all time? Like that would be very difficult to do. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why Mr. Wing has his shop in a basement. But my question is, all right, so let's assume these creatures don't drink anything. But we see them get we see the gremlins and duffies get just splashed with beer constantly and yet they don't start molting and bubbling. So does it have to be clean water? So, like, if you splash Gizmo with a mud puddle, would he sprout still? Or Ooh. does the alcohol in the beer, like, counterbalance the water? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe the Schlitz. I don't know. Because, like, you know. Um, if it's, it's Schlitz, wouldn't it be mostly water anyway? Well, I mean, it, it's it's true. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, fair. It's uh, it's paintbrushes, like, that are sort of, to keep them from drying out, they're just in a thing of water. But you got to imagine there's still some chemical residue in there. And, I mean, later... Stri- uh, Stripe jumps in a chlorine pool, so it, it, I don't know that it's clean water. Yeah, that's that's another one of the rules that sort of you can tie yourself in a knot trying to you know, figure out what is, what's the logic of that. I think the way those are laid out, it, the part of that's always got me is like the kid could have actually also said, if you get them wet, here's what happens. If you get them in sunlight, they'll melt. Have you seen Raiders? I saw it too, and you know I'm going to be in the next one, and they're going to melt like that, or. 
uh, you know, if you feed them after midnight, they're going to turn into green monsters. Like he, you know, it's one thing to give somebody a rule, but you tell them what the consequences. What the hell? Of course, I'm going to do it. Now, do uh, now do these pedantic rule complaints I'm making even matter to this movie? Does it matter at all, or is this no. just? Or, is it, or am I just letting the plot get in the way of the story? If you start pulling I, these threads, man, the sweater's coming undone. Like, it, yeah, <laughs> real quick. Yeah. No, it, it really doesn't matter at all because it's just so fun, you know? It's it, it's like just stupid, dumb fun that, that makes it worthwhile. I mean, and, and I guess it's one of those where, like, you know, once you add something and it becomes something else and, like, its matter actually changes, I suppose, is that when, like, it, you know, so, like, muddy water is still kind of water, right? Just has a little bit of mud in there, but like when you add like the coffee, to, or or you know when you're brewing a beer, that's like an actually different, right? It, it becomes something. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but who cares? Because I mean, I at the, at the end of the day, you know, we're gonna see some gremlins, you know, uh, chew a guy's arm off or something in the mailbox, and that's all we want to see. Let me give you guys a comparison. The, the movie you're wanting, where you want the rules to matter and, and say anything, is the it's Christopher thing. Nolan movie. Yeah, well, no, it's the thing. It's John Carpenter's the thing. That's where that makes it. And then, then you have the fun one, which is this movie. Much like if you want like the slasher that thinks, you want Halloween, nineteen seventy eight, or if you just want to watch people get chopped up, you want Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. You know, I mean, th- there's a difference. And I think these movies live in that time zone. You know, the thing and Halloween are kind of more in the serious, take themselves seriously kind of mode. Whereas Gremlins and Friday the 13th, 2 through 7, don't really take anything seriously. That's kind of the point of it. Uh, that's fair enough. I, yeah. I, I, I think the more I, I start focusing on these rules, the more I turn into a real Judge Reinhold character. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you're talking about the yuppie from hell. You right? got to have one of them. It's an 80s movie, man. You yeah. got to have a yuppie. It's, it's, I, <laughs> I mean, you see the proto, like, St. Elmo's Fire and all of those movies, like, in this dude right here. And what's so funny, you know, two years before or a year and a half before, he's playing a high school kid working at a fish restaurant. <laughs> he's crushing up D.B. Gates. And then they're doing this and, like, totally different, you know, people again. It's, it's, it's always fun to see actors that, that do things sort of consecutively with each other where they play a high school student and then they play like a, you know, successful executive two days later. It's, you know, it's funny. Well, that's one of the reasons why Judge Reinhold is in this movie because he was in Fast Times. They wanted people who already had chemistry with each other. So they're like, well, he, you know, he can act around Phoebe Cates. So let's just have him in the movie. <laughs> Moreover, he can act around Phoebe Cates and not drool like Zach Galligan does. So he can actually get through a scene. <laughs> Can yeah, we talk about Zach Galligan? I've picked on him a lot. Like, I mean, he he, he is the dime store Jimmy. He's Stewart. the blandest guy. Ever. Yes. I mean, he's he's naive to like a fault. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. as a character, he he's not a character. You're right. He's just a caricature. He's he's like so one dimensional, but at the same time, he's got like this charm to him. I think that, and that's kind of why you you follow him as a protagonist and. I mean, I completely, I, I get what Spielberg was saying because I completely bought his crush or his chemistry with uh, Phoebe Cates. I mean, he he was basically just fawning all over her, you know. And I mean, I don't blame him, man. I'd probably be doing the same thing. It's, I saw Fast I, Times. <laughs> I, I also think he was legitimately scared of Polly Holiday for for whatever reason. Whatever she did to him <laughs> on set, I like, buy it. Flo, Flo brought it. Yeah, I mean, like you <laughs> you see the look on his face. That's real fear. <laughs> like whatever she did worked. Well, that's one of the reasons Polly Holiday got this role is because uh, of Alice. 
And they were like, we want somebody that people know who's capable of just having an acid tongue, but we're going to take all of the comedy out of it. And that's where we get Mrs. Deagle, who is history's greatest monster, and the person in the movie who most deserves her wicked witch-like death. She so gets her comeuppance, yeah. There's definitely parallels between her death and the death of the Wicked Witch, because the last shot of her is with her feet in the air, like a, a dead cartoon character, or like a dead cartoon animal. Um, yeah, I, I got a, like a Wiley e. Coyote thing out of that whole, like, the, the automatic stair lift thing, and it just flings her out the window and all that. That was, I was like, I just waited for him to, you know, when he goes off the cliff and he holds up the sign, like, help. You know, and he drops. And if only to be that, accented. That would have been the time, best movie ever. Right? <laughs> only to be accented this time by the fact that, and I just noticed it this when she's going by that portrait of her husband, he sat kind of side eyed and like, yes, finally, she'll join me in hell. It's 100% a Looney Tunes gag. And, and I'm not, I'm surprised yeah. that. We don't see the eyes move to follow her as she whizzes past. Dude, it's a ghost <laughs> and Mr. Chicken awesome. gag. That's what that's from. It would have been awesome. That. It's a Don Knotts <laughs> gag. And but that's the thing, though. This movie, is, even though it's so 80s, is friggin' obsessed with the 1950s and everything about the 50s. The cool culture, Clark Gable and the race cars and all that, and the noir detective and the sweet, innocent town and all of that, all that stuff that we think is the fifties or whatever. This movie is obsessed with this town is obsessed with the fifties. So it's, it's neat to see a movie that is so eighties be absolutely obsessed with the 1950s only to be taught by what back to the future would do three years later. Right. Well, and I think that's why this movie kind of still holds up compared to a lot of other 80s movies is because it, it it's that superposition that you're talking about of like the two different eras. And so it's kind of timeless question mark. I don't you know, it's it, something about it. Just it makes it still worthwhile. And I don't know if it's just because it's zany because it's it's it is ridiculously over the top and um or not. I don't know. But whatever it is, it. It really does hold up and it kind of does have that just timeless feel. Yeah, 2022's Gremlins 3 would be set in like an Amazon distribution center or something. <laughs> oh, you know, I it, hope so. <laughs> it wouldn't be nearly as, as interesting. It would be funny for the gag, but I don't know that it would work as well. The whole point of Gremlins 2 was Joe Dante was like, I'm going to poison this well with so much poison. It, no one could possibly follow me up because I don't want anybody else to mess up my Gremlins. Did you know, did y'all it, ever see that Key and Peel sketch? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the kitchen, and they they send in like you know the the Hollywood like uh, you know, a sequel maker or whatever it is. And yes. <laughs> and, and, well, you know, for years I thought Rob Zombie invented ruining your own franchise when he did Halloween <laughs> too, which I like that movie, but it's weird, and I wouldn't tell it's you it's a good Halloween movie. It no, killed the franchise, you know, for a decade, and he did it because he didn't want him to do a sequel. And when he found out they were going to, he said. Fine, I'll do it. Yeah, cheaper. I don't care. And he just went and did it. He said, "We're going to ruin it all," and and he did. And uh, you know, Joe Dante invented that for him. So yeah, and Rob probably totally thought of like, "I'm going to do the Gremlins two version of a Halloween movie," and it pretty much does. And that checks out. That's, yeah. That's a good call, huh? <laughs> yep. It's funny because uh, I love as much as I love Gremlins. I think I actually love Gremlins two even more. Just because it's so over the top, it's so ridiculous. Uh, they just, you know, they take it to the next level. I mean, we got an electric gremlin. There's a vegetable gremlin. The bat gremlin oh, was like the coolest thing to me the, ever. The TV station where all, the, everything has a dedicated channel. And you just yeah. think like, how ridiculous is that? And now that's exactly what that's you're exactly the horror is. channel. You got the cooking channel. So you you're saying it's very channel. prescient. 
Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, but it's, it, that's what's fun. Like I look at that movie almost like an extension of my mass comm theory class from junior year of college. Like it feels like that in a lot of ways. It's, it's more a commentary on what's going on than you know anything else. But yes, it does murder the franchise. And it's, it's more watchable on an academic level. I guess you would say that sounds really stuck up. I don't know why I said it that way, but it's more, more of an exercise to watch that. Like you're not really gaining anything. Whereas this movie, if you just let it go, and, and don't pick at it the way that I have. And, and we kind of all have here a little bit. It is just kind of cute and it just flies. But we do have to talk about the fact that it does absolutely slow down. And it's not just the love story they try to cram into it. There's like a 25 minute segment of this where I was literally going like, come on with it. Just murder something. Do something like it. This movie could have used just a little more trim, like a two hour. This movie did not need to be nearly two hours long. Well, that's the thing. They already trimmed a bunch out of it, so I don't know how much, how much more incoherent. I guess it couldn't be much more incoherent, but 100%, you could cut every little bit of Corey Feldman out of this movie. I don't like Corey Feldman, but what's the point of Billy being friends with a literal, actual child? No, there's that, Billy could have made that, that doesn't same make any mistake sense. and knocked the water yeah. on him. Like, and it would have worked. It actually would have made Billy a little more culpable for this because Pete never has to pay for that. <laughs> no, he just disappears from the movie. Like, we never hear from him again. I right, assume I, he's at home dealing with his own gremlin problem, but, I mean, yeah, who knows? It's the craziest thing. Like, let's introduce his character. Oh, he's responsible for, like, all this stuff. Eh, whatever. Who I can cares? only think that, like, he, his death was something that they got cut because Spielberg has always felt bad about the kitten or kid getting murdered on screen and has swore he would never do it again, you know? And th- I just, I feel like... Pete would have would have bought it with like a hundred of those or ten of those things jumping into that Christmas tree costume and just tearing him to ribbons like that's which would have been the um, the critters two guy in the the Easter Bunny suit. Yes, yeah. yes, that that would have been perfect. Exactly, they, good I, I feel I feel like there's a bunch of Corey Feldman that was on the cutting room floor because there was a bunch of Judge Reinhold and a bunch of bank stuff and a bunch of Mrs. Deagle that ended up on the cutting room floor. There's this whole scene that was cut. Of Mrs. Deagle just excoriating Kate, just like destroying her. Yeah, but I don't think we need it. Like that's the thing, though. Like I, I get why you would cut that because you know she's evil just from the first scene with that broken snowman helmet and the way she she spikes fear in the town just walking down the street. Like in yeah. the two scenes when she comes in the bank, and again, I think Zach Galligan was legit afraid of that woman. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it on his face, and it, and that's all we need. Like we need more of that. I think what I could have done with less of, and maybe I want an explanation of it, is I, I know the gremlins run the town of Muck, right? And there's that whole bit where they're at Duffy's bar. And I want to know at what point Kate decided to start serving them drinks and then to continue to do so. I, that I could have done without. That never made any sense to me. Even as a kid, like I remember seeing this, you know, like I said, I was four years old when I saw this. I didn't get why was she sticking around? Serving them drinks, you know, that just made no sense to me. I have a perfectly good explanation for that. Bunch of green scaly monsters coming to your bar. Are you going to piss them off by not giving them beer? Or are you just going to liquor them up and hope they pass out so you can leave? Because there's no way. If she tries to run, they're just going to maul her to death like presumably they did Corey uh, Feldman. (laughs) 
So your best your best chance is to stay behind the bar, pass out the beer, and hope one of them wants to be a smooth or a, a smooth jazz noir guy in a, in a bar. You're, you're going for the the Peter Venkman. What we should do with the marshmallow man? He's a sailor. He's in New York. We get this guy late. We got the trouble. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know what? They didn't even try that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> well, there were several of them coming on to her. Bless her heart. Now, I've always thought, but like, I think that it's the gremlins causing mayhem in town. Like, we could have montaged that up a little bit more, and I yeah. think it would have it, it would have made it just go a little more fleet. I'm talking about if you just trim ten minutes of this, it it may feel less like we're there. Let's let's get with it. You know, I I don't know. It just seems like we we take a long time to get to the big showdown at the sporting goods store mall mm-hmm. place or whatever. So that shift in tone between like the it's a wonderful life versus it, this movie becomes a legit horror movie after a certain point. Yes, when they take the thing to the science teacher, that's when it becomes a horror movie. Yes, the the whole thing about Mr. Yeah. Hansen where that thing is skulking around in the dark, that's scary. The whole thing where Lynn is like going around the Peltzer house and these monsters are jumping out of her that's scary stuff. Like, even before they become full-on monsters, they're, like, tying up Barney. They're, like, beating up Gizmo. They're just little little jerks. And does that tonal shift where this movie goes from from being a, a, a comedy with, you know, bumbling Zach Galligan drooling on Phoebe Cates to a, to an out-and-out horror movie, does that work for you guys? I think it worked for me, uh, mostly just because when it really does happen, uh, his mom is just like a badass. I mean, she, she takes out what, like four or five of them all on her own. Uh, I think if, if she had died, I don't know if it would have worked for me in that case, which I, I would have made it more horror, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like that kind of eased into the transition a little bit because she was kind of triumphant. And so there was, you know, it wasn't so jarring. Like, I think if it had been, you know, her, her death, like originally written, I think it would have been just been too jarring. And, and I don't know if I would have uh, bought that, that tonal shift. Um, but I think because she's still, I mean, and it's frightening. Don't get me wrong. It's still kind of, you know, uh, suspenseful, but I think because she's triumphant, there's just a, that little bit of hope that you get, uh, you know, and a little bit of levity, especially in the way she kills them, you know, with the microwave and the, the Peltzer blender, what juicer, whatever it's called. I mean, I think because of that, it just it works a little bit better. I do think that it could have probably been a little smoother for sure. Um, I, I don't know how they would have done it, but I think they probably uh, a more seasoned writer perhaps could have um, just transitioned that a little bit better because it was kind of abrupt. See, my argument would be that it would have worked better had they had kept that tone going through it, where they kept kind of the the Looney Tunes ridiculous kind of funny mixed with the horrific stuff. I think a movie that does that really well, like Fright Night does that really well. There's part of that movie that gets really friggin' dark. And then it gets goofy. And it's fun. You know, it, it, it's like fun. So th- when, when the attack in the house is happening, and even the thing at Duffy's like, this movie is being fun and horrific at the same time. I was okay with that. It's when it takes that hard left into Albuquerque and it's breaking bad and we're jumping in pools and it's going, it's going down. Like then I'm like, well, we're in a different movie now. Like this is, you know, we, we have completely shifted gears and we can't go back to fun anymore. And that's what I feel like the, the second half of this movie on is really lacking a lot of the laugh and the fun that we got in the first half of it. It's really after the attack of the house, 
everything starts going much darker, accentuated by the TVKH speech, which we've already talked about. It's everything is so much darker toned and it's, it's like this movie starts taking itself seriously all of a sudden. I'm like, no, you were, you were better when you were just being goofy and funny. You were being live action Looney Tunes. Do more of that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the live action cartoon because that you kind of get to the point where it's starting to get closer and closer to dawn and you've got the town while they're they after Phoebe Cates tells her story, the town and the movie theater showing Gremlins the movie have all been rendered silent. Uh, the movie because the Gremlins are all hide hold up in the local movie house and your movie theater because Phoebe Cates just killed the crowd. But uh, all the Gremlins are holed up watching Snow White in what is a pretty good piece of Disney cross promotion. You guys remember when Disney used to re-release all their movies in theaters when they would call it opening the Disney vault? Yeah. Yes. Did you guys ever Mm -hmm. like get, go to any of that stuff as a kid? And what did you think of that? Oh man, I loved it. It was like a treat because you just, we rarely got to see any of the Disney stuff anyway because we, Mm -hmm. we weren't at home on Sunday nights to watch, you know, the Disney hour or whatever. And so to, to get to see that in a theater was, I mean, I saw Cinderella and Snow White and Bambi, all of them, I think, all the classics. Yeah. So my dad used to work at the movie theater in his hometown and he would, so he got to watch like a ton of these for free. Uh, and I remember a couple of times we'd actually go back to his hometown just visiting and sometimes we'd stop in the movie theater and he would like take us up to the booth and you know he'd just be talking to the guy and we would just be watching the movie you know through through the little uh the little hole whatever that the projector uh, shines through and so i did get to see some of these kind of <laughs> not quite in you know as the way you're supposed to see it but i i also enjoyed it i thought it was cool because same thing you know we we didn't really have a whole lot of the disney films ourselves and uh, in fact we had a betamax so i mean it was a little bit harder to get some of those anyway than it was vhs and so, I mean, I, I always just dug it, you know, I, I thought it was something neat, something different. Um, but again, it's also a, a really good move by Disney, just kind of throwing whatever they can in here and hoping that it sticks. And I, I think it did, of course. And now Disney rules everything. So you got to remember where Disney was in 84 too, man. Like the, anything to just get somebody to pay attention to us pay at this point. Yeah. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll take Spielberg. Heck yeah. You can have whatever you want, you know, and, and that's how, <laughs> that's how they, they really started to resurge is they started wisely investing the capital they would get off of these things and turn it into something else. But that's a whole, that's a whole other paper to talk about. But yeah. And it's funny because I'm watching the Gremlins as the movie starts playing. And Jerry, you have a two-year-old. I have a two-year-old. You've got other kids. I don't. But the Gremlin response was like watching my toddler respond to the actual scene in Snow <laughs> yes. White. I hope. I hope. Yeah. She was straight she up. Was, you know, would be running around doing her thing, screaming and yelling, be bopping, shoving snacks in her mouth. And then the movie would start. It would just be like, boom, saucer eyes. And then she would start, she starts singing along yep. with, uh, the seven dwarves. And I just thought that was really funny because what is a toddler but a gremlin? That, uh, <laughs> a made toddler's a human totally meat? a gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having, uh, having had three of them now, I can definitely say, uh, toddler equals gremlin. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, you're right. It's exactly, uh, and my two year old still, we were watching a uh, space jam earlier tonight. Uh, cause they want to see the new one. I was like, no, you got to watch Michael Jordan first. Yeah. So, um, we were watching that and same thing. She was just kind of not paying attention. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, something exciting happens and she's, 
right there, you know, and then she starts doing exactly what Lola Bunny or whoever was on screen was doing. And so, I mean, they're just, their attention span is so short that I feel like, uh, she could party with these gremlins like forever and be totally cool. Like they, I don't think they'd hurt her. I think they'd literally just be like, Hey, let's go hang out. Let's go grab a beer or something. Yeah, uh, that's definitely uh, one of the things that that struck me the most about having watched this for, like, the first time since having a toddler. It's like, okay, I I see how your brain is wired, and I see how their brains are wired. It all makes a lot of sense. Just pure id. Chaos. Chaos, yeah. Like the uh, Nathan Pyle comic strip with the little aliens, where there's the little young alien and says, chaos is how I learn. Billy and Kate get to live out everyone's dream, and that is to blow up a movie theater. (laughs) Now, Jerry, when you were exploring your dad's hometown movie theater, did you find any giant gas mains in the back? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't recall any giant gas mains, uh, but no, no, I can't say I did. So I, I got to chalk it up to different times. Uh, guys, or we're, we're, plot, we're missing armor. We're missing it. This is an environmental film now. This is wow. anti-fracking. That's what this is. Wow. This is what happens. They're going to light the whole thing on fire. See? Mind like, blown. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, like, wasn't that not the trope of every 80s movie is, let me find the gas man the and gas put man. a small yeah. flame in front of it and blow it all to hell. You know, like, we've been doing that for years. Didn't they also, like, blow up the movie theater in the blob or try to? They did that. They, so. did, they did it in a Final Destination movie. They've done, they've blown up a lot of movie theaters. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty funny because, you know, I don't remember there being a lot of giant gas mains, but my thought was if you're going to do this, then why don't you just do the universal fire and find a big room full of old silver nitrate film and just like light that on fire and it'll go up like a priceless movie history or light those old curtains on the side that have never been dusted. <laughs> That's instant, you know, they, they don't light anymore because of all the dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. They're their own fire retardant. Now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I, like yeah. Asbestos. I, but I, th- I think like the, it's a, it's a problem though, is that we create this army of gremlins and then we have to find a way to dispatch them sort of all at once to make Stripe go on the hunt for water again. Right. And I'm like, well, what? I mean, you created them so you could wreck the town. I get it. But it is a little cheap that they get taken out so easily. Like it's, I don't know. I love that. That perfectly like just, just predictable, convenient just plot device, you know? Oh yeah. We're all right here. Okay. Let's blow them up. Oh wait. One of them isn't. Aha. Uh-huh. He's. <laughs> Because yeah, he went to get extra snacks. Like, that's that's why Stripe isn't there, we should say. He's like, oh, oh, I need some more jujubes, guys. I'll be back in a little bit. <laughs> and he's like, everything smells like... You guys smell gas? I smell gas. And he gets out of town. Stripe does sneak across the street to the Montgomery Ward and another piece of product Montgomery placement Ward. to get yep. candy. Is this Joe Dante quietly supporting people who sneak snacks from outside into the movie theater? He's subverting so the whole industry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's blow up, blow up the theater and sneak snacks in. <laughs> right? Scathing indictment on the, the whole cinema. cinema only, to be, only to be taught by the fact that this movie is only streaming on HBO Max exclusively. So there, there we go. And oh. yes, listen, is, Joe Dante also did Matinee, right? Yeah. Which is the did, most yeah. interesting love letter the, John to, Goodman? Yeah, to the yeah. movie theater experience. But. Yeah, totally is. So, I, yeah, I, 
I don't know. It's I, I think it's just a joke. Is we you have to get him out, right? You you got to get the main bad guy out. Gary Busey can't get shot by Riggs that early. And you got to have the fight on the lawn. It's the same thing. It just gets repeated over and over and over again. And that script was running around Hollywood at this time, so they may have ripped it off. We don't know. <laughs> Shane Black stuff's been around a while. Maybe Shane Black wrote the ending of this. You can't tell me he didn't because it kind of goes down like a Shane Black movie. Like there's predators stalking. There's again, we're shooting people with all kinds of hardware. <laughs> you know, the, Stripe is a, is a little murderer, and, and it, it, you know Billy takes a beating. I, I will say Zach Galligan. It's good that he's you know tall because he he's going to need some of that height to recover. Okay, I do have a question. So uh, he's like trying to hold off Stripe. You know, Stripe's got the uh, the chainsaw. He's trying to hold him off with the bat. Like, what was his plan? Like, he did nothing else to try to get him off of like like. Like, dude, eventually it's going to go through that bat and you're going to die. Like, do something. Like, kick him off. I don't know. Whatever. Or realize you've got four feet on it. (laughs) Maybe, (laughs) maybe we should just move (laughs) and then squash it. I don't know. That's that's the funny thing about these. Look, it's the conceit of all the dang Chucky movies, too, is how the hell can that happen that way? (laughs) Because it can. Yeah, that's that's pedantic even for me, and I've been being pedantic about the gremlin rules this whole time. It's, <laughs> it's called Jay. Don't kick this puppet. It's worth more than you are. That, yes, that is a million true. dollars here. If you kick the string puppet, we will fire you. So we can find somebody else to googly eye this this brunette. So we'll reshoot it. We can replace you with a Dylan, uh, a Dylan brother, yeah. or you know. We can just die. We can just put Judge Reinhold in a wig and not Look, tell anybody. I, I will call Rob Eric Stoltz. <laughs> Steven Spielberg at that moment. Like, I will call him up right now. Yeah, you yeah, heard a little guy called Michael J. Fox? <laughs> uh, we can get him. Yeah. I mean, we can only get him on the weekends because family ties is a slave shop, but whatever. We'll, we'll get him when we can. I'll, I'll take Stoltz. Whatever. Stoltz, yeah. <laughs> We'll do, we'll do it all. But no, we, we get the big showdown. And I mean, it is, it is a big action scene. And I do, I do get a good wink out of the gizmo driving the Barbie Corvette thing, you know, even though like that's completely impossible or whatever. It's like, that, that's funny because it's replaying the Clark Gable lines of stuff. Like I, I dug that as sort of a Clark Gable mark. And I, I like that movie. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's kind of cute. I thought that was cool. This scene, this climax at the end, was the coolest part of all those Gremlin record books. I agree because it was done so well on the record. And yeah, they I, really, they really did a good job with those. They yeah, knocked those out of the completely. park, and I'm afraid to go back and listen to them because what if they suck now? But. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the danger with everything. Yeah, I know, I know. And I, sh- I should say that that movie. I know that name of the movie is to please a lady. It's it's the the Gable movie that you're you're seeing referenced throughout there and the the race car and the romantic thing, but it's got that same, again, it's 1950. It's that same sheen on top of it. The hero is going to come into the day, but Gizmo like launches himself off of like a snow shovel and just lands in the corner conveniently by the window. I don't think he knew that's what that was. And I don't think he knew how it worked. (laughs) Like how did Gizmo realize like, Oh, I need to pull this string because that'll cause problems. No, he puts it together because he, he tracks up the string to the shade and says bright light, and then he pulls it. Oh, I missed that. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. a good point then. So I, I missed that point. Remember when department stores sold guns? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Guns, what? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
that did that totally brought me back because uh, I remember all that. That's it's so weird to think about now, but yeah, that was like a normal thing. I mean, even Walmart, remember? See, Sears and Roebuck had Sears, shotguns yeah. in a catalog yeah. that you could just order, and it would be mailed to you or shipped to your local store. And I remember so, uh, a lot of those used to be like that whole hunting area used to be right by the toy section too. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not even talk about it. in the eighties, there was a hunting toy section as it were. <laughs> that, that was quite a blast from the past, but why is it that Stripe is the only one who bothers to get a gun? Why does Billy I, not get a gun? I, well, yeah, I, yeah, I was wondering the question. same. I'm like, Billy disarms him from a lot of things. Billy could have gone full ash and really armed up if he had wanted yeah. to. But let's remember, you know, Billy is stupid. And so therefore, <laughs> all he's thinking about is getting out of the Montgomery Ward somehow. Uh, but his dad shows up and like, you know, like what actions like, am I in the scene? Okay. What am I supposed to do? And, you know, and look, look horrified at that goo on the ground. Okay. It's funny, but I, I will say though, like you do a full on horror movie, like those effects. When, that when, melting scene. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Like I was scarred from that. That totally got me. And I think I was, that got me worse than the actual face melting scene of Raiders. I, and I don't know if it's just because it was already a creature or, or because you see the kind of skeletal bubbly goo afterwards. I don't know what it was, but for some reason I was like just a lot more terrifying than, than the, you know, the, the whole Ark of the Covenant bit. I mean, I, th- I think that there's two things. There's one, he's a creature and you've already seen him kind of bubbling anyway. Cause he's doing the, the multiplication thing and you're like, Oh, that's gross. And the Nazis deserved it. I mean, so come on. That's <laughs> that, true. That's yeah, the truth. Yeah. yeah. Stripe did nothing wrong. We, we all know this. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, I wouldn't go that far wrong. But Billy is the least, like, all Billy does in this whole time is get, like, attacked and shot at, get beaten up by a little two-and-a-half-foot-tall green monster. And the person who's... protagonist ever. <laughs> <laughs> and the person who saves the day is even smaller than Stripe. It's Gizmo. Because, like, mm-hmm. Hoyt Axon doesn't do anything. Barney the dog just kind of barks and almost gets run over by the Barbie car. And Gizmo's the only one who's like, oh, right. I guess it's up to me to stop this thing I didn't do, Corey Feldman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gizmo has realized, like, these morons have caused all of this. So, Barney, get out of the way. I got this. (laughs) Yeah, Gizmo watched him some Clark Gable movies. He got a little machismo, and he's ready to go. (laughs) I think if I remember from the novelization, like, they provide a little backstory on this. Um, where that, I guess the Mogwai were actually like, uh, creatures that were, um, created by some aliens. And I guess like one out of every 10,000 or something actually wouldn't turn into a gremlin if you got wet. But somehow, I guess Gizmo, wow. it's so weird. Of course, novelizations always add like a whole bunch more. Um, but yeah. sometimes I actually wonder because a very, you know, few times novelizations actually add stuff from like the, uh, like a previous draft of the script. And mm-hmm. so I always kind of wonder like, what was in like like was that ever in the actual script or was that just the brainchild of the? All the, I know is somebody at Fox got that and held on to it all the way until we had Alien versus Predator. <laughs> that that lasted a long time, man. Oh, <laughs> now I so want Alien versus Predator versus Gremlins. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, but in the original draft, Gizmo turns into a, a gr- turns into the lead bad Gremlin. He's supposed and to be striped, no, right? There is That's no right. Stripe. He is striped. Yeah. 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 
can I tell you, like, I almost like that better though, that there, like, there's real consequences right there. Now that's a different movie and it would be a much darker movie, but I kind of like that. And I almost wish they had done that because then there's, yeah, you have to, Billy would have to kill his pet. Put him down like old Yeller. Oh, yeah. Man. Right. Yeah. You have to, you have to kill your favorite thing, you know, to be able to survive. That, that would that yeah that would have been a way to go but i think like spielberg or whoever said like now nah, man we're gonna sell like a billion of those stupid things so you can't do that yeah that was 100 percent a spielberg idea he, he was definitely and he's admitted as much i believe that it was his idea to make sure that gizmo stays throughout the whole movie and that gizmo has an active role throughout the movie um and it was a smart idea i mean for real look look how much the movie made um and look how much all the merchandising made. I mean, who didn't want a you know a Gizmo? I mean, he was like we talked about earlier. He was just so ridiculously adorable. Um, so that's like completely a win there for them. But I kind of wish I had a piece of that action because I mean, right? That's, that's like <laughs> I mean, a yeah, lot of money there. I mean, not only that, like you're talking about 37 years of intellectual property where everything after it is compared to it. Yes, yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, for real. Yeah, just imagine if Joe Dante owned the uh, marketing rights to this. He would be as rich as George Lucas right now. Yes, he would, but he didn't sign the line, Ron. <laughs> that's a bad yeah. George Lucas. Cut that's a, that's a, <laughs> no, we're going to keep that bad George Lucas. <laughs> Is that who that was supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even sure who that was. I was like, did Paul Bearer advise uh, Joe Dante about this thing? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh man, I gotta have you on my show just for I'm, I, the spoon. I'm dead. That's awesome. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it was before George began the merchandise, but George did teach Stephen about that, so that's where he got it from. Well, I'm sorry. Is that a Darth Vader mask you have there? My science project. We'll be writing a check for that, please. <laughs> That's better. Your Lucas is improving. That was a better one. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. But uh, okay, so before we get to the ending of this movie, Jerry, you're a music guy. Jay, you are a music guy. The two of you need to talk about this Jerry Goldsmith score. Specifically, you need to talk about the Gremlins theme that everyone knows about this movie. The Gremlins rag. Mm-hmm. So it was written as a ragtime kind of with ragtime kind of feel, and so we actually have stride piano being played on one hand. I mean, it's basically, it's not quite a minor blues, but it's basically just like an AABA kind of structure, which is really simple, but um, so it's really catchy and it, it's, you know, it's got the syncopated rhythms, you know, bum, 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 bum. And so it's just, it really kind of propels that, that feel and it's just silly. And I think, you know, the, the use of synthesizer, because this was like during that time when he really, Jerry Goldsmith, who I love Jerry Goldsmith, um, you know, we were talking about him earlier and you know, yeah, a lot of times he just kind of phones it in, but when he's like really on, his stuff is amazing. I, I think Planet of the Apes, I think Alien, I mean, there's just, just Poltergeist, I, I think is one of my favorite scores of his as well. But in this one, by making it like that ragtime kind of feel, uh, again, it it's, makes it timeless. So we're talking about, you know, spanning all these different decades and, and different eras, but at the same time, it emphasizes like the silliness of these creatures. Uh, and then just adding the synthesizer to get some of these weird sound effects. And then, of course, we get like typical Jerry Goldsmith, you know, action cues with like ostinatos and like low brass and, you know, glockenspiel runs and things like that. But 
I, I love the, that theme. It's just, you know, it's, it's really just like a minor, minor one and then it goes to like a minor four and like just hits the dominant five, like for a little bit. I mean, it's just nice and simple. Yeah. No, it, it, it totally works. And it, it gives you that, again, that offbeat piece of it yeah. makes it weird. And what I, I always call it is like, it's evil carnival music. Yeah. And that's, that's what that song, really the, the rag is. And it's what a lot of the, the music in this is. It's, the the wacky carnival gone awry music and, I, <laughs> yeah. and I'm I'm here for that. I also will now blame him for everything Danny Elfman's ever done because I feel like that is a lot of what is happening in Danny Elfman's life is is evil carnival. Evil carnival, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Just yeah, went, I mean, you know, and I, I reviewed one of those paste. weird Elfman movies once, you know, back in the day, and it's yeah, the music's the same. It's just this off. There's just something a little off about it. Like you can't dance to it, you know, but it's, yeah. you kind of want to, but you can't. But yeah, it's, you, I, I imagine some of those early Disney cartoons did this. If you've ever watched them, they're black and white and like everybody has stubble and they, they look homeless and scary. And yeah. there's always like evil music going behind them, like, you know, it's just, it's, it's funky. And uh, I love it. I mean, Goldsmith, like say, when he's on, he's on, and he creates stuff that only when you hear it, you know exactly what movie that is. Yeah, scene is, and that's the best compliment I can pay to any school. Which I think is kind of missing from like a lot of movies nowadays. There's like yeah. not really very, uh, uh, like very memorable themes. And one thing that like John Williams, Danny Elfman, Jerry Goldsmith, all these guys did really well, and and this is a perfect example of it. This this Gremlins rag here, uh, and even Gizmo's theme later on, which is also kind of like does double duty as kind of like a love theme, I suppose, but. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, they're very memorable. You know, you hear a gizmo, uh, you know, do, 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 that kind of thing, you know, and it's, and it's, it, Jerry Goldsmith's really, how should I say this? He really doesn't use a lot of like diegetic kind of music, like music itself that is, um, you know, is actually a part of the scene and is like, is part of the reality of the film. Most of it is just score that accompanies, you know, whatever's happening. But in this case, I mean, he actually did. That's gizmo hums that theme. You know, that's like his song that he kind of sings or whatever. And I think he, he really uses it very well. And then, of course, we hear it, a nice, lush, full orchestra with strings and everything. But uh, the one thing that always stands out to me is just a lot of the, the synths in this one. There's just so much synthesizer that, yeah. And and I get it. I, I mean, you know, you have a new toy to play with. And, and he was always known for, like, using all sorts of random and, and novel instruments. So, like, in Planet of the Apes, he used, like, mixing bowls turned upside down. You know, he also used like the Brazilian cuica and a, 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 a Jewish shofar, you know, that kind of thing to, to get those those primal sounds. And Alien, you know, he used like the uh, the didgeridoo and a, a conch shell and um, a serpent. You know, it's like a medieval instrument mm -hmm. uh, that he used. But here, I mean, it's just we have a new toy. It's a synthesizer that he'd been playing with for like a few years. But you get all these different cool sounds to kind of blend with the rest of the orchestra. And yeah. so you can really tell that, OK, this is. I get it. It's your new toy. You're playing with it. But, you know, I mean, I would have liked to have seen a little more creativity in it. Although I, I got to applaud him just because that theme is just so memorable. Yeah, I think I think we should tell people, too, like the synthesizers he's using are the kind that like you have to literally tune them to get what you want out of them. You don't just yeah. dial it up and play. You have to mess with it on a, on the diodes and all that stuff. And it was yeah, stuff that like. Cool. Yeah, the like Pink Floyd and, you know, really Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys were the ones that really pioneered a lot of that stuff. 
and it had made its way into movie soundtrack at that point because it got cheaper to make them. You know, it used to be a good synthesizer with half a room, you know, and then it, you got yeah. three. It was just a big box and you could do things with it. So yeah, you play with a lot. It, it does, it does make this very much part of its time, but in the same, again, like you could lay some of the score on any modern movie and it would work for the most mm-hmm. part. Maybe not the rag, but like, you know, just the, the orchestral pieces. The action would, cues. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. They would lay right in any Marvel flick that's mm-hmm. out there right now. Yeah. Now I really want uh, the Gremlins rag overlaid onto Loki. <laughs> right? Like, I think that would actually work, too. I think yeah. it would. That's, that's a Especially good call. Especially with the uh, alligator Loki. Spoilers for Loki, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Think- <laughs> yeah. If you hadn't watched Loki by this point, by the time this show's out, y'all, come on. That's true. <laughs> get, get on the train. Join the movement. <laughs> so, do we think. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith was just like, hey, look at what I got at Gary Newman's garage sale. <laughs> he, he brought in like a crate full of synthesizer. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I can see that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> totally I think it's fun, that. though, these composers, particularly ones like Goldsmith and Horner, some of these guys that have been around for decades, mm-hmm. to watch them adapt to the new things of the decades yeah. as they come come through. It's what makes it. Again, what makes their their work memorable and their stuff memorable is that yeah. they, they pick up whatever the new thing is. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think um, what really drew drew me to Goldsmith was I'm, I'm like a huge like 20th century orchestral fan. So like you know, there's like romanticism, classicism, you know, uh, all that all that stuff, Baroque. But to me, I really like stuff like Stravinsky and and Bartok and like all those guys, Berg and Schoenberg and you know all those guys. And I think he had does a great job of like combining like the atonal uh, qualities of Berg with like the just uh, primitivism of like Stravinsky, and he just combines them together in such a way that it just it uh, it really works, you know. And I was talking about Planet of the Apes, so you think about like that hunt uh, cue when when Heston's you know trying to escape from the apes and he's captured for the first time. And we get that on piano, you know, boom, 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 boom. And he just has that ostinato going underneath. Well, we get kind of a similar thing with like all these action cues where when, uh, the, um, you know, Mrs. Deagle, you know, in that scene and, and when the gremlins are just running amok. And, and so I love how he combines that, but at the same time, he overlays it with the melody that is just so memorable. Because of that, I think that's why it works in the context that it does. Um, I remember there, there's an old story about Stravinsky wanting to, to get into film music because, I mean, at that point, orchestral music was already kind of dying out. And so he, he met with like the head of a studio. I think it was MGM. And, you know, he's like, the guy was like, I hear you're the best composer in the world. He's like, yeah, I, I guess so. He's like, okay, well, you know, we have a new movie coming out. How long will it take you to, you know, to write some music for it? He said a year. He's like, all right, bye, Mr. Stravinsky. You know, so I think of that, but then I think of like Jerry Goldsmith being able to do that in like just, you know, eight weeks or, or whatever it is that it took at that time. Um, I know it's gotten shorter and shorter nowadays, but I mean, to me, that's just amazing. And I, I, I mean, I got to compliment him because even though we use the synth, that rag is just, it works. That leads us to the end of the movie where he Luke returns to get his Mogwai back. I don't know how he knew things had gone awry. I don't know if he just left Chinatown, like had only, was only just getting there because he took the slow bus when he found out his grandson sold the Mogwai to the whitest man who's ever lived. Yeah, dude, he's on foot. He walks. <laughs> he walked across the earth to go get that thing. <laughs> 
Oh, he's not Kane from Kung Fu. He didn't walk across the earth. I mean, no, no, he walks out of town. He's not walking toward the bus station. He's walking on the road toward the moon. So he, like, he maybe that's what took so long. Yeah. <laughs> so like, like wherever the heck Kingston Where Falls is, Kingston is supposed Falls, to be, yeah. like, it's supposed to be like upstate New York or whatever. That'd take you a little while to get there. So. Is it upstate New York? I thought it was Ohio for some reason. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's, it <laughs> I is. No idea. It could be. I mean, you know, again, it's Hill Valley, I, so it's I not thought it was just Midwest somewhere. Yeah. Midwest, yeah. But. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is Ohio. So, but still, that's a good hoof. You know, you're from Chinatown. You got to go to Pennsylvania. <laughs> a lot of hills. <laughs> Problems. Yeah, especially when you're a hundred year old man? Question mark. He's easily he's clearly right? old. <laughs> yeah. He's, but he's in great shape, you know, right? But I'd love it he comes back and, like, not only does he get it back and gives his money back, but he has to lecture everybody in the house, too. As if, like, they don't realize the sense of what has happened. The yeah. whole town's dead except us. We're all that's left. Yeah, I know you sliced your arm open and, and your house is demolished, and uh, a lot of people lost their lives, but come on. You guys weren't ready for this. How dare you try but only the gall to turn around to Billy and give him that false hope, like, maybe one day you will be prepared. <laughs> I'm like, what was Got Billy it. going to do? The the challenge of the warrior to get the magua? Like, I'm, I'm sure the look on Billy's face is like, no, nah, it's all right. Like, I'll say goodbye. And it's it's okay. I'm. Did you see the brunette? Like, I'm just going out with her because she doesn't turn into an evil monster when I get her in the shower or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, totally know want to see like I've, I've, look. I've seen this chick come out of a pool. She does not go evil. No, no, but she is wet. <laughs> no. no bubbling going on there. Uh, <laughs> but I totally want to see like Billy's training montage now, <laughs> as he becomes worthy and learns how to deal with the Mogwai. We'll set it to a uh, survivor like uh, Rocky Four. There you go, right? Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and then top it off with hearts on fire. Just let's lay that on top of it. And then when he finally gets the pet, you got to put the "You're the best." Yes, <laughs> that would be perfect. You're the yes. best. Oh yeah. There we go. Yes, let's let's do all of that. Yeah. You know, it, it's I'm really down. it's really funny to me that uh, Key Luke gives this lecture about you know you people of already destroying nature or whatever. Which is rich coming from a guy from a culture where they built the Three Gorges Dam that displaced like over a million people and has killed at least 30 endangered species that we know of. I guess since he speaks Cantonese, he's from Hong Kong, not from like mainland China. So maybe he's just as much a victim of the Chinese government as everyone else is in that situation. Not yeah, to I get think, political or anything. I, th I think we can give him a pass on, on most of that. But uh, it, like I said, the, the thing about it is it, I just find it funny that he feels the need to lecture them when yeah. the damage is there. <laughs> yeah. We know. It seems like, like the, that whole situation is like the lecture, don't you think? <laughs> it should be more only accent by the fact that Hoyt action is just desperately trying to apologize to him. <laughs> and it, it is a good bit of comedy. He was like, I, I want you to have one of these smokeless ashtrays or whatever he's trying to give him. And it's, it, I don't know. It's just funny. No, a man already tried to give me what or whatever the gas station guy that he gave one to earlier or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought that that was it was a good bit of comedy on top of. Yes, we know <laughs> we are not, I, not only am I not ready. I don't want to be ready for this thing. Let me say bye to it, and you take it back and don't whatever whatever this is. Please destroy it because <laughs> there can't be more of them. I mean, really, it's it's Mr. Wing's fault for selling a Mogwai to Hoyt Axton. 
It's his grandson. Uh, it's his grandson's fault. Yeah, yeah he, he didn't want to do it. That right? we know. Turn him down. That's what, who we're blaming, but we don't know that. <laughs> no, look, that, that is a complete commentary on how youth, uh, even even youth from other cultures, are corrupted by American capitalism. Rod, can't, can't lose sight of the the geopolitical statement. Uh -oh. movie. <laughs> that kid was one hundred percent born in America. We, we, we all know that. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. That's why he was like priceless animal, rare, like, endangered, dangerous creature. Yeah, two hundred dollars sounds about yeah, right. We we need the we need the money. Come Look, on. Look, he knows like we gotta get the light bill on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the New York Power Department is not a charity, I can assure you. Yeah, we're hooked up to that Ghostbuster thing across the street. <laughs> it's getting a little dicey. Yeah, the EPA guy is still there. Like, I think there's going to be problems. I'm, I'm hearing words. Walter Peck is breathing down my neck, guys. Come on. Yeah. Got to do something. It's another reason you know that uh, Kingston Falls is not in New Jersey because nothing is glowing in the middle of the night. So it's obviously somewhere that's relatively clean. Yeah, uh, Kingston Falls is, is takes place on Three Mile Island itself. That would have made the gremlins somehow more terrified. Or it would have made them a rolling Embrick Godzilla, one or the other. My, my, I was just thinking of the Chernobyl miniseries where all the, the miners, the, the, all the naked mm -hmm. miners go underground, but it's just gremlins. Hey, it's hot down here. I am all in. Uh, I'll, I'll watch that. Striper is the hero of the Soviet Union badge. <laughs> just kind of pin it to his neck. Oh, if Stellan Skarsgård can just play Mr. Wing, we've got a sequel. Okay. <laughs> well... After those wild digressions that went nowhere, it's time to get this ship back on track with our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for Gremlins. If you're not familiar with the popcorn ratings, we go from small to extra large. You can add any kind of qualifier to that you want, extra butter, burnt, full of kernels. Uh, but, you know, however you, you want your popcorn and however you feel popcorn describes this movie. And as our guest, you will get to go first. Jerry, what do you have to say about Gremlins? So overall, this movie, I mean, it's just a joy to watch. I think it's just so much fun. It definitely gives you like all the Christmas feels. Um, it's not one that I normally think of as a Christmas movie, but um, like Die Hard, I think there's just so much Christmas in it that, uh, I mean, it's got to be, you know, you, you can totally take it as a Christmas movie. It's just everything about it screams uh, wacky, but also uh, that it it you know it does have that turn. But at the same time, it just it just makes you happy when you're watching it. It's just so much fun. So I think for me, I'd give this uh, a big old large tub of popcorn. I might add a little bit of butter, but there are definitely definitely um, a few kernels in there. It is a little too long, I think. Um, you're right, that section does kind of drag, especially like in, in the third act there, uh, or like just that transition right between the second and third acts, I think could probably have lost maybe just a little bit of time, and it would have been perfect. But just because of that Phoebe Kate's speech, because of the delivery, because it's just so unbelievable, really, uh, I'm, I'm definitely giving it that big old tub of popcorn. Jay, what say you? So, again, as I watched this for this review and I realized how little I'd actually ever seen it, I can't deny the impact it had on pop culture because of all of the things that we've talked about through this review that it references, that it's a part of. And it certainly is something memorable, even though it borrows from so many other pieces. And, and this makes it kind of fun. 
uh, it's definitely not perfect. And there, there's a lot of problems with this. And like say, if you, you know, start, start picking at it the, the way we have, the threads are going to come out of the sweater pretty easy. But if you just sort of let it wash over you, it, it can go down okay. Again, I still think it drags a good bit in the second act. That That's still a problem. But you know what? You can check your phone or whatever during that time. I, mean, I, w- I don't recommend doom scrolling at any time, but you know, check the weather, look at your Scott portfolio if you have one, something like that. Check your email. Uh, make sure your boss hasn't sent you something at 11 o'clock at night, whenever you're watching this. And then when you get to the third act, if you'll watch it as like, okay, this is now a horror action movie, you kind of can follow it and go with it. And it does have a pretty satisfying ending. And, and again, you can laugh at a lot of the goofy stuff in it, but it's so iconic. And the score's great. Um, the acting in it's not very good, but there's some fun parts in it. I'm going to give it a medium popcorn, but let me let me follow through with the metaphor. This is the medium popcorn where back in the old days in the theater when they buttered it for you. And you you feel like, oh, yeah, the, the person giving me that really did a good job. And you get to the top part and you're like, oh, man, all the butter's gone. So now I'm just eating this kind of salty, sort of rubbery substance. And oh, there's a burnt one. And eh. then you get to the bottom and you realize the butter has settled there. And it's the good, good soaked in kind of popcorn butter. And that's what this movie is. So it's a medium popcorn with layered butter. And I will give this a medium popcorn with extra butter. It has a lot. It has flaws, but there's a lot to recommend about it. Uh, Mostly, this is the kind of movie that it's cliche to say this is the kind of movie they wouldn't make these days. Because this wasn't the kind of movie they were really making back in 1984 either. This is a really strange, really strange novel movie that takes really big swigs and it doesn't always connect. Every so often it'll, something will land and land really hard, like the, the creature design, like the Gary, like the Jerry Goldsmith theme, like the action in the second half of the movie. Like the, just the shot, just the crowd shot of all those gremlin puppets watching Snow White and bopping around and having a really good time. Just stuff like that just kind of clicks and hits and, and hangs really well. So I'm going to go medium popcorn, extra butter. Yeah, I can't say it any better than these two gentlemen have. Uh, but before we go, Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and give us some plugs? So, uh, yeah, I'm the host of Totally Rad Christmas. I've been doing this for close to two years now. I had my big um, Christmas in July episode, which was just a big <laughs> clip show. I did an awards uh, <laughs> an awards show just as an excuse to do like a big clip show, essentially, of all my favorite uh, my, my favorite episodes. Uh, it was so much fun. I try to talk all things Christmas in the eighties, so it's not just uh, it's not just movies, it's not just specials. We talk books, we talk magazines, we talk comics, we talk toys like Mask and He Man. Um, you know, uh, Transformers and GI Joe, we talk, uh, e- things that barely have to do with Christmas, but Hey, like if you got it for Christmas, that kind of counts as well. I give a huge leeway. I talk fun stuff like, um, night of the comet, uh, Ron, I, I had the pleasure of you, uh, coming on the show and we talked invasion USA, you know, the, uh, Canon film with Chuck Norris. Um, I just, I try to keep it fun, you know, and just m- my main goal is just to remind you of that time you were growing up when it was kind of just magical and weird and wacky because it was the 80s and everything was neon but also like they had the best stuff like you know toys and cartoons wise so you know i just i try to do that every episode and i have guests from other christmas podcasts i have guests from just other random podcasts uh on that's just so much fun and um 
it's just one of those things that I love doing and I can't wait to do more. <laughs> so I got to get you guys on again. Uh, Jay, I'd love to have you on for sure. It's been a blast. And you can find us anywhere you get podcasts, of course. And on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Totally Rad Christmas and on Twitter at Rad Christmas. I do have a website, but I still haven't done anything with it yet. So uh, don't go there. But <laughs> but it is totallyradchristmas.com. <laughs> One day that will be something useful. It, eventually, yeah. And as always, you can find the stuff that I write at dinofgeek.com. I will have covered American Horror Story. I will have covered The Walking Dead. I will have covered all sorts of things that aren't necessarily Christmas-related but might fall into the horror sort of area, um, and not to mention other random stuff that just pops up here and there. And as always, you can follow the show's social media, at FilmStripPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There you will find announcements about upcoming shows, links to shows that are currently out, and a link to our letterbox page, which contains our entire archive of reviews. So feel free to go to filmstrippodcast.com to check out our Anchor FM page. Or you can just find us on your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. You can find this pod wherever fine pods are casted. Please like, rate, and review. Give us a positive rating. Give us five stars. Uh, share the show with people you like. Share the show with your enemies. Share it to, with everyone and to everyone. Jerry, as always, thank you very much for popping on the show. It was great to have you. It was a totally rad experience. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of humor you get on this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for real, though, thanks for having me. It was, it was a ton of fun. <laughs> yeah, we will definitely have to have you on again for uh, a movie we've talked about doing for quite some time with Jerry. Uh, yeah. But I won't mention it yet. Save I'm that excited. for later. <laughs> but for Jay and Jerry, I'm Ron. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, etc., etc. Thank you very much for listening to Filmster. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.